0: letting me be here today I'm honored to uh, to get a chance to speak to you uh, I love you guys like family so appreciate it um, I'm gonna pray but go ahead and keep your Bibles open to Ephesians 2 and if you've got something to take notes with get that ready too because uh, I'm hoping that there's some fire and some things that um, blow your mind if your mind isn't blown by grace You don't know what what it means. (laughs) All right, let me pray. Holy Spirit, come. Have your way. Destroy the things that keep us from you. Let your grace come and just blast us. Use my lips. Open their ears. Come and have your way, Lord. In Jesus' name. Okay. Take notes. There will eventually be a test on this material. Uh, Today we are talking about sola gratia, or the theology that it's grace alone that saves us. And as Paul mentioned, that 500 years ago, uh, this was a, a major contention in the Protestant Reformation because the main teaching in the Catholic Church was that we were saved by grace and good works. Now, of course, you hear that now and you're like, whoa, that's ridiculous. That's because we have been reacting. We've been protesting and reforming for 500 years, saying, that the, no, that's not right. I mean, and we're going to read the scripture again that says, nope, it's the opposite of that. It's just grace. It's not grace and good works. I was getting uh, coffee a second ago with Paul, and I was telling him how he has basically hit on every point <laughs> of my sermon with the catechism and the songs and the prayer beforehand. And he said, well, I'm glad that the Lord's doing it. And I said, uh, well, grace is the beginning and the end of all things. That, that's not part of my sermon. <laughs> and he said, Whoa realize what you just said? Grace is the beginning and the end of all things. Okay. Apparently, I'm just going to cry all day. <clears throat> I'm trying to keep it together here. The word grace obviously means unmerited favor. And so then the opposite of that would be merited, deserved, earned favor. In fact, the whole... Earning favor by good works is all over every religion in existence except biblical Christianity. So it's kind of nasty. It's eked its way everywhere. And so my goal today is to awaken your heart to the many ways that grace plays into your life uh, in order that the glory be given to the one that truly deserves it. Now, if you earned your acceptance by God, you deserve the glory. God deserves all the glory. So, and as we will read and have read, that uh, the Bible says that since we are saved by grace or unmerited favor, unearned, undeserved favor, if that is true, if grace means it's unmerited, then the only thing that can disqualify us from grace is trying to earn it. The only thing that can disqualify us from grace is trying to merit unmerited favor. I get it. That's hard. That doesn't seem right. It seems unjust. It's not fair. Favor's not fair. Um, And it doesn't make sense that our acceptance by a holy, righteous God would set things up this way, that it would be grace alone apart from good works, apart from any deserving of our own. And I, I also don't like to be in debt to people. But if you can't get comfortable with being indebted to God, you don't get the gospel. We all owe a debt that we're not able to repay. So point number one is that grace is scandalous. It doesn't make any sense. Even the fact that we can call him father. I got tons of international friends and I've been told... You can't, call, you can't call God Father. I thought, well, I, I can because I've been adopted, but you can't. It's easy. All you got to do is say, I receive your adoption. There is one thing, so grace doesn't make sense, but there is one thing, one paradigm that would change that and make it able for us to understand that grace does make sense. And I'll illustrate it with a story. A couple weeks ago, we were at parish, and Laurel, who is watching the kids, she told my wife Meryl that she was really proud of Josiah. She said, I just so enjoy Josiah because he and Sam were in the same class and Sam's two and a half and needed a lot of help and so Josiah would just take care of his little brother, you know, helping him with crayons, sharing crayons and even telling the teacher when he needed to go to the bathroom, they'd all go to the bathroom together. And so later Meryl tells this to me and I was just, it was strange. I was filled with pleasure. I, I started beaming. I puffed out my chest and walked around and said, oh my gosh, this, it was strange how full of pleasure I became just because someone else enjoyed the goodness of my son. It reflects good on my son. It reflects good on us as parents. And it filled me with joy. I think that's a picture of what grace does in the heart of God, the Father heart of God. We lift up his son. (laughs) We say, he has done everything for us. And God beams. (laughs) He is filled with pleasure because we enjoy his son. That's what we were made to do. Sorry, guys. He says, Look at what my boy has done, the Prince of Heaven. And we say, Yes, he has done it. He has done it all. We honor your son, our older brother, for he ransomed us by his blood, by no deed or work of our own. He has brought us back into the presence of our Father, whom we were sent out by our rebellion. And so when we glory in Christ, when we enjoy what the Messiah has done, the father's heart leaps in the same way that mine did, but on a much grander scale, because I'm talking about Josiah sharing crayons with Sam. And I'm not a perfect father, and he's not a perfect son. And I'm not talking about my son who has you know, destroyed the veil of separation, you know, destroyed death and hell and Satan and sickness and sin. So it, there's, a, there's a difference. So then the one thing that puts grace into a paradigm that makes sense is the exaltation of Christ. He brought the grace, he earned the favor, he lived the perfect life, he brought honor to his father. He was perfectly obedient and he brought us into the family of God. Therefore, he gets the glory and we get the pleasure. He gets the honor and everyone shares in the joy. Okay, so let's look at the book, so you know I'm not making this stuff up. Ephesians 2. I'll start in verse 4. I'm just going to read it again, if that's all right. God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that none may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, so so verse four, God, rich in mercy, out of his love has done all of the following things. God does this, God does all of these things. In fact, let me just pause for a second. Um, You've heard this, but you are loved perfectly and completely. There's nothing you can do to make him love you anymore there's nothing you can do to make him love you any less out of that motivation, out of that love this is, what, this is where we go verse 5 even we were, when we were dead in our sin, our trespasses we couldn't do anything but sin we were stuck hopeless helpless Dead people cannot make themselves alive. (laughs) But God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So grace is salvific. This is an issue of justification. Thank you, Westminster Catechism. Thank you, Ephesians. Thank you, Jesus. We were dead in sin. Now we're dead to sin. That means sin is no longer our master. Before grace, we couldn't help but sin. We had no choice not to sin. We were dead in our trespasses. And only God can raise the dead. So when someone comes into the kingdom of God, it's a miracle. There's a dead heart becoming alive as someone is made right with God. That's why whenever we have baptisms, it's so powerful. I cry a lot. Apparently I cry a lot. Kingdom stuff, so. (laughs) So, There's a dead heart becoming alive as someone is made right with God. Now, grace is the freedom not to sin. It's freedom from sin. It's not freedom to sin. Grace is not a reason to say, let's do whatever we want. We're just going to get forgiveness for it later. That's that's a, a bad view. That's the opposite of the reaction to grace. If you look at grace in context, you can't have that reaction. Because in the beginning, God made Adam. And he set Adam over all things. He said, be fruitful, multiply, rule over my creation. Then Adam disobeyed and was kicked out of the garden. he gave away his authority. His rebellion cost him the kingdom. And then Jesus comes on the scene and he says, guess what? The good news is, the gospel, is that my kingdom is back and it's available for you. And if you make me your king, you come in as a servant, I will let you into the kingdom. it's the kingdom that makes all things new. But then Jesus goes one step further towards the end of his time on earth. And he says, all right, I'll even give you authority in my kingdom. I'll let you reign in my kingdom. So first off, it's bad politics to let ex-rebels back into the kingdom. That's not a good idea. And it's a really bad idea to give those ex-rebels any type of authority in the kingdom. That's bad politics. But Jesus says, no, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll take care of it. I'll, I'll give them a new heart. I'll put my spirit in them. And then they will reign with me. That is how we don't live in this place of, oh, God will just forgive me so I can do whatever I want. No, we want to be with him, and we are grateful that he has chased us down and tracked us down and pursued us He's left the 99 sheep so he could come get us. <laughs> so it's ridiculous that we would respond and say, we'll just abuse this grace. It's not possible. Because we're grateful for what he's done. Verse 6 says, He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So just as Jesus was raised from the dead physically, we are raised from the dead spiritually, and we are raised to a new life and given a new heart, but it goes even beyond the new heart, the new life, because we've also been seated with Jesus in the heavenly realms. Like, you guys ever read that before? (laughs) He has honored us. He set us. Jesus is in the place of honor at the right hand of God, and we're sitting with him. That ought to blow your mind. So grace is not an issue, it's uh, scandalous, it's an issue of justification, it's also an issue of glorification, because everything is to the praise. All of this, in Ephesians 1-6, is to the praise of the glory of his grace. But he even elevates us? That doesn't sound right. Can that be right? No, no, surely. If you, you may remember Matthew 25, where Jesus, the Son of Man, comes in his glory and all the angels with him and he sits on his throne of glory and he separates the nations in front of him right and left like sheep and goats and he says to those on his right come you who are blessed by my father inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you from before the foundations of the world and he has that whole because I was hungry and sick and lost and lonely and in prison and you took care of me you visited me the, the operative word that I want to focus on for just a second is inherit. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom of God, the kingdom that was prepared, prepared for you from before the foundations of the world. Quick question. Who gets to inherit kingdoms? Princes. Yeah, even in the natural, like, if the queen of Great Britain ever dies, she's pretty old, uh, only the princes, only the, the children of royalty, only royalty is allowed to inherit kingdoms. And Jesus says to those on his right, come inherit the kingdom. And this ain't plan B. Come inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you from before the foundations of the world. What does that say about your identity? Royalty. So I see Jesus in Matthew 25. He's sitting on this throne of glory, and he beckons some of those. He says, come, come inherit the kingdom. Come sit up on the, the armrest of my throne. Here, hold on to the, the scepter. Here, try on the crown. Oh, it suits you. That's very nice. Come reign with me. And that's what we were made to do. We were destined to reign with Christ. What does someone have to do to inherit something? What, what does a prince have to do to inherit royalty, to, to inherit a kingdom? Nothing. He just has to have his name in the will. He has to be connected to someone who had authority and died. That's Jesus, by the way. And guess what? Your name's in the will. Again, in Luke 12, Jesus says to his followers, Fear not, little flock. Fear not, tiny sheep. (laughs) For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So he doesn't even give his authority to his younger brothers and sisters out of guilt, but pleasure. He is pleased to let us reign with him. All because of grace. All to the praise of the glory of his grace. Because we were dead. We were rebels. We were dead in our trespasses. He says, okay, I'll change all that. Now come reign with me. Back to Ephesians. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He gives us this high honor so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. Whoa, 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 guys, we just passed a purpose clause. That's, anytime you see the words, so that, in Scripture, pay close attention because you're about to get a peer behind the the veil. Like there's the reason for everything before comes right after the so that. So that, in the coming ages, he might show the riches of his grace because of his kindness us in Jesus. Wait, wait, wait. The purpose of all this so far is to to display the riches of his grace? Jesus is saying, uh, sorry, the Father is saying, look at my boy. (laughs) Look what he's done. (sighs) Mm. Sorry. Come on. Okay, verse 8. It is by grace that you've been saved through faith. So grace is the thing that does the saving, and it happens to come through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Saving grace is a gift, in fact, a free gift. All that favor? Totally free. Can't buy it, can't pay for it, can't pay it back. You know what's offensive, though? Trying to pay someone when they've given you a gift. Like someone gives you this gift out of love. They give you this gift, and you pull out your wallet, and you start trying to hand them dollars. They're like, what are you doing? I'll punch you. <laughs> Don't do that. That's offensive. Trying to pay for something that's meant to be a gift is like this. If you're married, and you have a time of intimacy with your spouse, and then you get up and leave some cash on the bedside table, That's offensive. That's offensive. I asked Taylor if I could say that. <laughs> he said, you better. So if that offended you, my email is justin at I welcome your angry emails. His grace is sufficient to save you. Do not try to add to that salvation because it is offensive. Let me transition to the flip side of that. Let's talk about some people that are really good at just receiving grace or receiving in general and not trying to pay for things that ought not to be paid for. This is one of my favorite books. It's called The Story of God's Love for You, 10 bucks on Amazon. The Friend of Little Children. Jesus' friends were arguing. Who is the most important helper in God's kingdom? They wanted to know. I am, said James. No, you're not, said Peter. I am. Nonsense, Matthew said. I'm the cleverest. No, you're not. Yes, I am. Yes, no, I am too. This silliness went on and on like that for some time. You see, Jesus' friends had started thinking that they had to do something to make themselves special to Jesus. That if they were the cleverest or the nicest or something, Jesus would like them the best. But they had forgotten something. Something that God had been teaching his people all through the years. That no matter how clever you are or how good you are, or how rich you are, or nice you are, or how important you are, none of it makes any difference, because God's love is a gift. As, and as anyone will tell you, the whole thing about a gift is, it's free. All you have to do is reach out your hands and take it. So while Jesus' friends were arguing, some people who knew all about getting gifts, in fact, you might say they were gift experts, had come to see Jesus. Who were they? Little children, Jesus' helpers tried to send them away. Jesus doesn't have time for you, they said. He's too tired. But they were wrong. Jesus always had time for children. Don't ever send them away, Jesus said. Bring the little ones to me. Now, if you had been there, what do you think? Would you have had to line up quietly to see Jesus? Do you think Jesus would have asked you how good you'd been before he'd give you a hug? Would you have had to be on your best behavior and get dressed up and not speak until spoken to? Or would you have done just what these little children did? Run straight up to Jesus and let him pick you up in his arms and swing you and kiss you and hug you and then have you sit on his lap and listen to your stories and your chats. You see, children loved Jesus, and they knew they didn't need to do anything special for Jesus to love them. All they needed to do was to run into his arms. And so that's just what they did. Well, after all the laughing and games, Jesus turned to his helpers and said, No matter how big you grow, never grow up so much that you lose your child's heart, full of trust in God. Be like these children, they are the most important in my kingdom. (laughs) That's good, isn't it? (laughs) Kids don't put on airs, they don't hedge their statements. They don't entreat with grand requests. Sam has woken me up a couple times and says, Hey, Daddy, can I have a piece of gum? Say, sure. (laughs) Say, sure. And I was praying over the boys this week, and Sam interrupted me. He goes, Jesus gives us gum whenever we ask. And I tried to correct him, and I started to say, Well, he doesn't give us everything we ask for. But nine times in the New Testament, Scripture agrees with what Sam said and not what I was trying to correct him. Jesus said, ask anything in my name and I'll give it to you. Nine times in the New Testament. And I'm trying to like, well, no, that doesn't mean that. Sam's theology is better than mine. And he's two and a half. Jesus gives us gum whenever we ask. I mean, that's closer to Scripture. Okay. Uh, Back to Ephesians. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift. Not a result. Your salvation is not a result of works so that no one may boast. So we'll be glorified with him. But since it was Jesus that did all the work, Jesus gets all the credit. And that means that anyone who trusts in the Messiah for their salvation is on perfectly level playing field with every other human Because grace is the ultimate humility bringer. You can't receive everything you have and then think, oh, I'm better than them because I've received more grace. (laughs) It's ridiculous. In fact, there should be no such thing as an arrogant Christian. There should be no such thing as a Christian who can't take rebuke. Because grace makes us humble. Now, Don't go thinking that humility is thinking less of yourself. That's not humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Less often. There is a healthy self-forgetfulness that comes when you recognize that everything comes from grace. And we can be a grace-giving community. We can be a grace-giving husband. We can be a grace-giving wife. Daughter, son, father, mother. Only because we are a community that continually receives grace. Here's something else you can write down. You can't give what you haven't received. If you're walking in a place right now where you're not receiving grace, you're not going to be able to give grace to your kids. Or if you're ignoring that it is from grace, you're not going to be able to give grace to your spouse. In fact, if you've received grace from God, then you have to be really good at forgiving. That's why Jesus said, if you don't forgive others, I'm not going to forgive you. That's a terrifying verse. But the way that that plays out is, if you don't recognize that this forgiveness is from grace, then you won't be able to forgive others. You won't be able to give what you haven't received because you haven't received it from here. If you can't give forgiveness, if you can't give grace, it's because you haven't received it. That was for free. (sighs) So we can love those who don't deserve it because we're the same. Now, it's not humility to put yourself down. That's making an agreement with the accuser. Don't do that. If you make an, an agreement with the accuser about, like, I'm stupid or I'm worthless or I'm not good enough, uh, if I hear that, we're going to have words. <laughs> um, my boys, some, like Josiah, he gets frustrated at school. He'll say, I'm stupid. I'm like, don't you talk about my son that way. That's the way God feels about you. When you make an agreement with the accuser, he's not mad at you. He hates that agreement, though. So stop that. So obviously, grace makes us humble so we don't boast, but also don't go the other way and speak down on yourself. And look, here's verse 10. It says, For we are his workmanship, his handiwork. And that just means that he made us. He owns us. We're his. He has the rights over our lives. And we don't. So we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Hooray, there's the works. We're not totally separated by work, from works. We are saved by grace alone. Good works are not salvific, but good works come. They were made for us. We were made to walk in good works, but they're not salvific. And that's not what gives us our identity. Taylor does not get his identity from how good his sermons are. You should not get your identity from anything other than grace because we're adopted. The love which he lavished on us. A son or daughter of the king. So what, is, what do these good works look like? I would argue that as grace empowers us, that those good works look like us partnering in world domination. World domination for the kingdom of God. Not not Christianity talking about world domination for the kingdom of God, when the kingdom, when Jesus reigns in totality and we spread that fragrance everywhere we go because we've been anointed to carry the good. We have the ministry of reconciliation. And if Jesus is your king and you go to table 51, then the kingdom of God has come to table 51. If you go to target, the kingdom of God has come to target if Jesus is your king. kingdom of heaven the rule of the king in fullness over all the earth and it's because of his grace that allows us the privilege to participate in his renewal of all things i like to talk about world domination a lot because we've been delivered from the dominion of darkness and put into the dominion of his beloved son and jesus in revelation says behold i am making all things new Come be part of that with me. I'm making all things new. Come join me in the renewal of all things. And I, I get you. I mean, I grew up in a Baptist church. So we didn't talk about world domination. We talked about being good. We talked about doing the right thing, not doing wrong things. I think that's just a weak. I think that, that's a week. Doing Being a good kid or a good adult That's not going to transform nations. We're called to transform nations. In Luke 10, Jesus sends out his followers, and he tells them, heal the sick, cast out demons, tell them about the kingdom. The kingdom is upon you. I see that. Like, hey, anybody sick? Okay, you're healed. You got demons? Get out of here. All right, kingdom of God. And people are like, whoa, 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 whoa. You got to tell us more about this kingdom. Oh, yeah, Jesus is making all things new, renewal of all things, you know. They're like, please tell us more. Oh, okay, well, let's sit down and have dinner. I think that still applies to us today. I think that is a command for us. So the the disciples do that, and they come back, and they're rejoicing. They say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus says, don't rejoice that the enemy of mankind is subject to you course he is, duh. <laughs> rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. Your name's in the will. Don't rejoice that Satan is under your feet. In fact, Romans 16, 20 says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's what I think good works look like. Uh, maybe I, I didn't see anybody go, oh! <gasps> I'll read that again, or say it again. Romans 16, 20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. First time I read that, like, maybe a year ago, I was like, oh my gosh, apparently I've never read Romans 16. <laughs> because that's significant. And the prophet Isaiah, long before the arrival of Christ, prophesized. There will be a son born to a virgin, and of his government, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. That means his reign will never stop increasing. His peace will never stop increasing. What's so interesting about the dominion of Christ is that it doesn't come at the end of a sword, but at his kindness. It's his kindness that brings us to repentance. Okay, quick story. Uh, about what grace looks like just on a normal Tuesday, I met with a friend and a sister, and this woman had been struggling extensively with anxiety, depression, fear, anger. She wasn't able to sleep. Um, She had a lot of self-hatred, and she's always expecting to be rejected, and she was a perfectionist. Got any perfectionists in here? You don't have to raise your hand. That's okay. (laughs) So we did some praying. We did some listening. And I know listening prayer, we did it once a couple of months ago. It's not that weird. Believers actually hear the voice of God all the time. And that's the easy part. The hard part in the Christian walk is not entertaining other voices. So You can can distinguish between the voices. Jesus said, my sheep will hear my voice and they'll know it's me because they know me. So God still speaks. What he says is always in line with scripture. And it absolutely changes people's lives. So she's got all these symptoms, right? I don't know where I'm supposed to start. I don't know how we're supposed to pray. But I want her to be transformed. I want her to encounter the heart of God. And so I say, why don't you ask the Lord this? What's the number one way I can worship you right now? She's like, ooh, okay. So she, God, how do you want me to worship you? <laughs> and then she goes, rest? Rest? like yep <laughs> that doesn't make sense she goes okay but I don't want to be slothful I don't want to be lazy I need to be productive oh and then she said something that shook the walls she goes I'm just afraid that I'll disappoint God Uh oh <laughs> stop stop everything Uh, I don't usually do yes or no questions because it's really easy to to make up what you want to hear, but just ask the Lord right now. Is it possible to disappoint him? God, is it possible to disappoint you? No? How can that be? I'm not good enough. I do bad things all the time. I'm an angry mother. If you're in Christ, which it says like 20 times in these 10 verses, it's impossible to disappoint the father. Because grace means that whenever, Jesus, whenever the father, whenever the judge, the king of kings and lord of lords, whenever he looks at you, he sees his son. So it's impossible for him to be displeased or disappointed in the one who bore our disgrace. He's not mad at you. God's not mad. He just wants his children to come home. Like the the father of the the prodigal son is standing on the, the rooftop, beckoning, waiting. He's not mad. Okay, so go back to this listening prayer time. She's got this fear of being a disappointment. And I said, okay, why don't you ask the Lord to reveal the first time that you felt like you were a disappointment? She goes, I know, already. I was five. I was a flower girl. I didn't like my haircut, and uh, I was super embarrassed. (laughs) And I'm like, man, that's really, that's really something. Like, you just immediately went there? Okay, thanks, Lord, because I don't know where we're going here. And she said, someone gave me a verse. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And I laughed because when she had been quiet a moment ago, I wrote that verse down. So, like, I got my little journal thing. She goes, the joy of the Lord is my strength. And I go, ha! And her eyes got big. She's like, why did you write that verse down? I was like, because we need to talk about it. Apparently, the Lord gave me a heads up. She had always taken that verse to mean that God makes us happy, and that makes us strong. So she even started to believe that if she wasn't happy, she was doing something wrong. She felt like if she—she felt like she even wasn't enough because she was unable to produce her own happiness. I started to laugh. I was like, I don't think what that means. I think that verse actually means this. The king of kings is pleased. He's happy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. He is a happy God, and that's what makes us strong. So you don't have to produce happiness. You just look at him and know that he's happy. She's like, oh. <laughs> like you would see, you know, explosions in her mind. Like, oh, I never... And of course I talked about my boys And how I delight in them And when I'm delighting in them They're afraid of nothing So the next question she asked God how do you see me Or what do you call me Give me an identity from you And immediately She saw her precious little daughter Who was adopted (laughs) It's too easy (laughs) God how do you see me My adopted daughter. (laughs) Mm. And then she started preaching. She goes, oh, the way that this little girl gives me pleasure is the same way that he looks at me? And she didn't do anything to become part of our family. We went after her. We traveled across the sea. We paid lots of money. It was costly. So we could bring her into our family, and what do we expect of her? at all just be part of the family just receive our love (laughs) and then she goes oh her name means mine that's too easy how do you see me adopted daughter what do you call me mine Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy my burden is light. You're tired, working yourself to death. Jesus says, come to me. Let me take your burdens. Let me take your yoke. If you accept what I expect over you, you'll find rest. You want to know how to receive the kingdom? Become like a child. Kids know they don't bring anything to the table, they aren't expected to. Little Levi, you hear him over there? He's four and a half ish months old. All he does right now is eat, sleep, and make diapers, and sometimes cute noises. And all of those things give us pleasure, fill us with pleasure. I, He's laying on our bed and I'm just staring at him. And he's not doing anything. And I just can't stop looking at him. And then he wakes up in the middle of the night smiling. And Meryl's like, well, now I have to feed you. But she's still pleased. In fact, so you can write this one down too. I believe that Spiritual maturity is based not on what you do for God, but how well you receive from Him. Spiritual maturity is based not in what in what someone does for the Lord, but how well they receive from the Lord. Okay, so what? What's the practical application to all of this? Number one, stop striving. Grace kills perfectionism. Thank you. And in that, stop striving. In that, give yourself grace. It's okay to not be okay. It's okay to need help. It's okay to ask for help. You're not alone. you got a bunch of people sitting right next to you that'll help, that would love to help. They'd be honored to walk you through whatever you're walking through. Number two, start receiving. Get really good at receiving. Wake up and ask the Lord, okay, Lord, what do you have for me today? And then receive that. I mean, this, that whole thing, like this is all about abiding, walking with the Lord and receiving from him. And number three, recognize that it's a gift and therefore be humble. And forgiving and gracious, you've got to spread that grace around. In fact, if you have someone that you need to reconcile with, do it today, baby. <laughs> if you have a conversation that you need to have, do it today. And then receive God's grace, and then give it. Okay. The ultimate picture of grace is the most glorious honor killing that's ever happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus knew that his time to suffer had come. And he prayed, I don't want to do this, but I'll do what you have for me, Lord. The Jews didn't kill Jesus and the Romans didn't kill Jesus. But when the soldiers came to arrest him, one of his men grabbed a sword to protect Jesus. And he said, don't you know that I could just ask and get 24,000 angels to slaughter these dudes? I don't need your help. Put that down. The soldiers said, which one of you is Jesus? Jesus. And he answered the same way God answered Moses, whom shall I tell them sent me? Jesus says, I am. (laughs) Then everyone is blown away. They fall back. They're like, what happened? (laughs) They get up. Jesus is standing there waiting. He's like, let's go. Do what you came to do. So then they take him to the high priest, the top Jewish guy. The Jews didn't believe he was the Messiah because they knew that the Messiah was going to be the king and save them. From Roman oppression, they didn't know that he was going to be this, the king of the whole world and save everyone from Satan's oppression. One of my favorite parts in in the Scripture when Pilate says, "Don't you know I have the power to have you killed or released?" I can kind of see Jesus like snickering. He's like, <laughs> "No, that power was given to you." And then elsewhere, Jesus says. I have the power to lay my life down and pick it back up at the end of the weekend. You don't have that power over me. So Jesus chose to go to the tree. He set his face towards Jerusalem, and even when he was lifted up, he could have called down angels. But no, he stayed, and it wasn't the nails that held him to the tree. It was love. Because he knew that he would never, we would never know the presence of God if he didn't sacrifice his own life so that our shame could be covered by his blood. And nothing cleanses shame except for blood. In summary, grace is scandalous. It's an issue of justification, our being made right with God, or adopted into his family. Grace is also an issue of sanctification. It helps us become righteous. It's an issue of glorification as it exalts his name above all other names, and it even seats us with him in the heavenly realms. It's, It keeps us from becoming proud. And at the same time, grace takes the pressure of performance off of us and keeps it on Christ where it belongs. So I'll say it again. You are loved perfectly and completely. There's nothing you can do to make him love you any less. There's nothing he, you can do to make him love you any more. Let me pray. Worthy are you, O Lamb who was slain, the righteous, spotless Lamb who took our place. Worthy are you to break the seals, for by your blood you ransomed people from every tribe and tongue and nation and ethnicity. And you've made us a kingdom of kings, you've made us kings and priests all to the praise of the glory of your grace. We honor you because you are the one deserving of honor. We worship you and we enjoy you. Let us walk in grace. Let us be a gracious people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.